0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com.
1: Spring is right around the corner and with it a plethora of outdoor activities. Whether you're into spring turkey hunting, fishing at the lake, or shed hunting and managing your deer property, our partners have got you covered. First up, Tacticam is our title sponsor, and their point-of-view cameras are my go-to method for filming my hunts. Their 6.0 camera has a built-in 1-inch LCD touchscreen that has totally changed the game for me. Its lightweight design, weatherproof housing, and one-touch operation really simplify the self-filming process and to make sure that I've got high-quality footage to share with my family and friends. My personal favorite setup for turkey season is a 6.0 camera mounted to my shotgun, one on a stake in my decoy spread if I'm using decoys, and one on a bendy clamp mount for an over-the-shoulder angle. And I pair these cameras with the Tacticam remote so I can turn on all three cameras with the push of a single button. To learn more or pick up your 6.0 today, head over to Tacticam.com. Share your hunt with Tacticam. Next up, no matter where my spring pursuits take me, I know I'll be hunting in comfort with my Huntworth camo. They make high-quality, technical hunting clothing at a fraction of the price of other brands. Last turkey season, I hunted in temps ranging from the teens to the mid-80s, snowstorms, pouring rain, blazing sun, and all of that was during the same 10-day trip, and my Huntworth gear had me covered for every single bit of it. My favorites for this time of year include the Durham lightweight pants, the Shelton hoodie, and of course, the Winstead rain suit lives in my hickory pack at all times. You can grab your Huntworth gear at huntworthgear.com. Finally, the Onyx Hunt app is an absolutely indispensable tool for me this time of year. Whether I'm chasing longbeards, looking for an access point when fishing, or just taking the family on a hike, the Onyx Hunt app helps me find access to where I want to be. One of my favorite things to do with the hunt app this time of year is to get out and roost birds prior to the season, marking them on the hunt app, then triangulate their location from different listening points. So I've got a really good idea of where those turkeys are roosting once the season rolls around. To learn more about all the awesome features of the Onyx Hunt App, head over to their website onyxmaps.com. Now let's get into this week's show.
0: what is going on everyone welcome back to another episode of the wisconsin sportsman podcast which is brought to you by tacticam i'm your host pierce nellis and this is your home for all things outdoors in the badger state folks it still feels like spring uh i don't know what the heck's going on i still don't know when the other shoe is going to drop i'm hoping march doesn't have just a frozen tundra waiting for us uh in the in the coming weeks here but it's been pretty freaking nice to uh be able to walk around in the in the woods without having to trudge through a foot and a half of snow and it's been nice going for hikes looking for sheds doing a little scouting and stuff like that and uh scouting is what we're going to be talking about this week. I've got Mr. Jacob Sklenner back with me. Uh he was on a couple couple months ago now back in November discussing his uh very very successful uh deer season. And Jacob as a result of uh well the results spoke for themselves in that episode, but he does a hell of a lot of work getting prepared for those hunts and uh, is an unbelievable scouter. So, we've got him here to break down uh, kind of what his postseason spring scouting uh, looks like for us here and just what that process looks like. And uh, got lots of good tools that uh, you folks can uh, take as you head out to scout on your property that you've got lined up for the coming fall but jacob how we doing man
2: really good man that's that's really flattering intro right there <laughs> i would have to say i can i would put an asterisk next to good scouter and i would put a exclamation point next to obsessed hard worker idiot but you know <laughs> I, I'll, I i pushed myself into the ground many times uh, uh walking many miles and, and uh you don't have to be a guru to to figure out some of the stuff I did. You just have to be lucky enough to stumble upon it if you walk far enough sometimes too. So, well, but yeah, it was a fun season for sure this year.
0: Definitely. And I think I mean, you got to I appreciate you being humble, but you got to give yourself credit cuz you're you are <laughs> going further. You are scouting way more than most people. I think we were texting what like last week or 2 weeks ago, you said you've already got like 25 miles logged of scouting just yeah, this year. Yeah, probably.
2: Like, I'm probably at 40 right now. Um, I I mean, I did six, I did six before we got out here. Sure. But, um, some of it's just, I, I would, I would emphasize to anyone listening to this, that like the, the number of miles and putting a tracker on every time that you go out is not nearly as important as the quality. And I would love to be at a lot less miles right now, because that means I would have been on good spots and I would have slowed down and started breaking them down. But, um, I've, I've ran into a lot of pressure, even in areas that I didn't expect it to. And, um, that made me keep the boots turning too, but, um, today I actually got to slow down a little bit too. So that was good. I found some good stuff, but, um, everyone talks about number of miles and, uh, it's a great factor. The more miles you put on, probably the more successful you are, but the quality of those miles is going to be something that you should appreciate a lot more than the sheer numbers absolutely but you are spot on it it does take a lot of a lot of walking <laughs> to narrow it down to a few really good areas that's for right sure. right man yeah i my uh, my miles are up there but it's
0: mostly because the past like two or three times that i've uh gone out and scouted i forgot to turn the tracker off when i got back to my truck and so <laughs> i was 10 minutes down the road before i realized ah crap i forgot to stop that so my onyx has some goofy lines <laughs> on it but uh that's, that's the least of our worries, but, um, you know, I like what you said there about how it's, you know, the quality over the quantity of miles. Right. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about here. Cause you've, I mean, you've through all of the miles that you've put on, I think you, from what I've seen, you've, you've kind of honed your scouting process and made it more efficient than a lot of other people who look at a map and you know maybe they watch a couple of videos or maybe they've gone out there for one thing or another but they're just going to go out and you know just walk around and stuff like that and as we know there, there are certain areas that are much better to walk around in than uh, yeah. than others right and so um i'm hoping well first off can you tell us we we've had this is the third time we've had you on can you give us a quick rundown of just uh, or a quick quick reminder for folks who didn't listen um, to the previous one? To just tell us a little bit about who you are. Um, you've got an awesome YouTube channel, which is I, I, I'm going to push everyone listening to this. Go check out The Wild Calling on YouTube. You will learn so freaking much. It's not even funny. But <laughs> Jacob, could you please thank introduce you. yourself?
2: <laughs> well, thank you very much. Um... My name is Jacob Sklenner. I'm from uh, southeastern Wisconsin. I grew up in a traditional kind of gun hunting only kind of background, the Wisconsin tradition, um, with very little success. I discovered the blood brothers and Dan infault moved off to Southwestern Wisconsin in the Hills to Perk college where I got a mechanical engineering degree and I wrestled in college as well. And, um, learned how to work very hard and work very smart at the same time and started finding a lot of success in the hills out there. And then uh, this past season, I moved back to the marshes in Southeastern Wisconsin back home and ended up having a a pretty good year this year as well. So um, it's been a lot of extremely hard work taking as much information in as possible. Um, But I think the thing I do a little bit differently, if you're to take anything away is, I always step back and observe and take things at face value. I don't always trust everything I hear. I try to analyze what's actually going on in my situation, um, which I think is really important, where a lot of guys I know um, don't necessarily step back and, and, and see what's going on and revisit their e-scouting. I think that's why I've gotten better at it, um, not comparatively, but just better as a person against myself. I think the reason I've gotten better at it and made my scouting more efficient, which is, which is what's most important is because I go in the woods and I fail like crazy. And then I go back to the map and see what my misconception was like, what was wrong about it and what I guess. Right. And then I start honing in on those right scenarios and it helps me learn properties fairly quickly. And uh, you know, of course I'm no savant. And I definitely could have a lot more success than I've been having, but that's something that's worked for me, um, may not work for everyone, but that is the the kind of approach that I support. So if you guys, have, I'm sure we'll give a lot of details about it right now, but if you guys want to try that out, it's just something that's given me some success in the past. Absolutely. Got two spin spin-off questions here before we
0: start diving in. First one here, do you notice a lot of change over like from year to year as you revisit spots and you kind of go back to double check your work almost
2: yeah, I do, um, and a lot of the double-checking happens in in season will happen on the map, and I won't necessarily bust the area out, but then in the postseason, I will see if things have changed, and, and I, it's funny you mentioned that because I was just thinking about that the other day, and you have a lot of guys that preach that um, rotating food sources will completely change the patterns and bucks will completely vacate beds for an entire year straight if say there were acorns last year, there's not as many this year, something like that. And so I don't see a complete vacancy of those areas. I think there's still a time and a place for them. Um, but I don't see as many bends as guys would say that there are that are purely based on the food source that's rotating. And I think that's a bit of the product of how ubiquitous food is around here, how much there's food everywhere, and there's food for all sorts of different kinds of. Times of the year, and deer can eat pretty much anything. Okay. Not to mention, um, so I do see change from year to year, and I do see a lot of value going back in, and I even see a lot of value when you scout of just turning around and walking the same trail you walked in, but just with the other perspective walking out. Like how many times you turn around to see a rub that you didn't notice at first, sure. no matter how slow you go, you know. And there's there's a lot of things you miss even on one straightforward pass that you catch going back. And so I think that's a small analogy for what you'll see year to year is there will be changes, but through those changes, you start to develop patterns. You'll start to realize that some food sources produce very habitual bedding. Um, Sometimes they're bedding without regards to a food source more because it's a spot that they're fairly away from pressure and things like that, too. So um, it's always valuable to look back at it, but it's not necessarily always changing as much as some people make it out to be. Sure. From year to year. Sure. Have you
0: noticed um like say there's an area, say you, you know where a specific buck is betting. If that buck gets killed, have you noticed in the years after that, will other bucks move in and kind of take over that area?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I I I believe so. I've I've noticed where a mature buck dies and it mm-hmm. probably sits stagnant for about a year. It's, at least the sign would say right. that it sits stagnant for about a year. Obviously I can't be sitting in a bedding area all year long. Right? Trail cameras don't capture everything, you know, but um, I've seen it where, you know, younger bucks, subordinate bucks will occasionally pop in there and whatnot. But I, and I've seen them get claimed the exact year after, but I think the highest likelihood I've seen is a mature buck, big buck, old buck getting killed. And then, two years later, you know, not the following year, but the one after it starts to get inhabited by another mature buck, but maybe not one of the same class. I, I completely agree with some of the people out there that say like, usually it's only one very special deer that beds there. And when that deer gets killed, it it will be replaced by a good deer, but not quite what that special deer was. Right. You know, and I think that maybe it's five years down the road, you know, maybe a really, really special deer will happen again, but um, and I'm talking upper one one percent of your, of your genetics, you know, of your, right. your antler size. Um, but you know, you may have a ten percent out there that's absolute shooter. He's just not one of those deer that makes you think, man, is this once in a lifetime, mm-hmm. uh, like the first one that was removed from that area. But that, that's a really interesting concept. And the The one thing I want to point out too, with with the previous conversation we just had, is like a lot of people live and die by historical data on trail cameras and i see strong correlations between year-to-year habits on trail cameras and those same people will say that spots go completely dead the next year because of changing food so it's Mm -hmm. like food does play an impact i think the difference between corn and soybeans is fairly drastic as far as security cover goes how close they're willing to bed to it but if you're still seeing your historical data pay off, maybe you need to consider that this area is not being used necessarily in conjunction, conjunction to rotating food. Um, I feel like you can't swear by either tactic. You can't swear by, okay, historical data is always going to work, and it doesn't have to do with crop rotation. Right. You can't swear by, it always has to do with crop rotation, and the deer will be absolutely gone this year where they were next year. Um, I feel like you have to look at that in your situation and see how it applies. I'll give an example. Um, there's a property that I hunted up in southwestern Wisconsin that at the very back side, it had either corn or soybeans. And for the first two years I was in school, I didn't know really what I was doing as much, but there's giant bucks everywhere. It's awesome. And the next two years, it just, just slowed way the heck down. And I didn't know what was going on. Uh, you know, this property, a lot of early season food and acorns and apples and stuff like that. But, you know, they just weren't in there nearly as much. And it had a lot to do with the security cover and some of their favorite bedding wasn't in that corn, but it was in very close proximity. Sure. So when they exited their bedding, they were either in the wide open or they had a lot of cover until they got to their food source, if it wasn't corn at the time. And so that property had a major swing across the entire property, because that was the major cover right outside, it was a smaller piece. It had a major swing in deer quality from years that it was corn to years that it was soybeans even though there were other food sources on that on that area um that being said there were still good bucks using it occasionally during the rut working in accordance to does and even on one of the years that it was soybeans i killed one of my biggest bucks actually the ones behind me right now on a year that it was soybeans when most of the other good bucks weren't around so it's a it's a very interesting thing and it definitely holds some credence but don't i'll ever i'll i'll say this a thousand times don't go blindly believing what someone else says try it out for yourself fails then you know for sure but if you can't make it fail you know for sure it works so right totally that's my two cents i like it man that's interesting and i've i've often
0: wondered that just because we've, we've had guys on the show who who do you know with sam billhorn with white tail partners you know we've kind of picked his brain a little bit and granted it was kind of late season stuff about um you know, the, what is the, the ideal late season food source for deer and stuff. And so just kind of across the board hearing the, between the private guys and the public guys and the land management guys and, the you know, mobile hunting DIY guys, that kind of stuff, Mm -hmm. just across the board, what the consensus is on like corn versus beans and how it impacts, uh, deer and deer movement and attracts them in various ways and stuff. That's, that's super interesting. Yeah. I want to dive in now uh to our scouting. Now is the time, you know. We're we're I think we're a little bit late. Like, I don't know. I almost feel like people were half expecting a shed hunting episode by this point, but I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna hold off on that as long as I can, just mostly because I suck at it. I'm having way more fun e-scouting anyways, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. I want well actually boots on the ground scouting we've got you on here to discuss what your scouting process kind of looks like right and how maybe some of the folks listening can improve their scouting process through kind of hearing how you've honed yours and kind of cut some of the fat off of it right made it a little bit more efficient as you're as you're approaching uh you know, whether it be a new property or a property you've hunted for years. Starting off with your e-scouting process, and I kind of just want to want to brush over e-scouting um a little bit, as much as we can, at least, because a lot of folks yeah, are getting out yeah. in the woods and everything right now. But can you give us a, a, a breakdown of kind of how your e-scouting process goes from start to finish? Like when you say you're you're approaching a property um you know whether you've been out there or not or i guess it's it's let's say it's a it's a totally new property i guess Mm -hmm. you're you're just going to be hunting at this upcoming fall for the first time trying to get a game plan together heading out into the you know this time of year heading out into the you know late winter early spring see what the woods looks like what's your e scouting looking like from the start
2: so and i'll try to i'll try to benefit both both sides here Mm -hmm. as far as hill country and marsh. So I'll try to like give a, give a synopsis, but um, I have a, I have a process that it basically have a lot of steps to this process and and you'll be able to see this in some of the stuff I've put out, but um, it goes with selecting a property and there's a lot of sub steps to that. Well, how you select a property, but it's selecting a property and then it's identifying likely areas of buck bedding and there's a bunch of ways you do that then there's identifying pressure there's a bunch of ways you do that and um there's identifying where you expect a sign to pop up in relation to that buck bedding so that you can be most efficient with your boots on the ground scouting and of course there's a lot of ways you do that and um and it varies depending on if you're you know in state out of state if you're going to be able to touch your boots on this ground or not um and then there's going and getting the boots on the ground confirming it and so to to kind of dive into that from the from the get-go with step one is identifying that property. Um the the process is almost the same for for hill country and marshes. You want to identify an area of the place that you're hunting that has the best deer that you can chase. That's that's the goal. There are parts of the county I hunt in right now that are much worse than other parts just 50 miles away. Um, and it's a nature of population and all sorts of stuff like that. So my first thing is I'd love to be a little bit further from cities if I could. I put waypoints on major cities. I make a radius as far as I think is reasonable. And then I start to try to knock down some of those properties as much as possible. I keep my eye on them, but I don't necessarily write them out. But I try to rule out ones that are likely getting a lot of pressure just, just from the get go if I'm to narrow down a whole state to a property, you know. So I'm picking areas of good genetics, area that I know is good, getting a little bit further from cities. And then I'm trying to get intel from things like the DNR, um, a lot of their biologists about what they've seen from genetics, registration, things like that. Uh, sometimes I'll consult record books. A lot of times you can go to farmers and talk to them about stuff. You can go to, you know, your just local barber shop, coffee shop, whatever. If you're in a small town like that, like that can be very, very valuable source of information. People love to talk about deer, dude. Like okay. that's the thing I've realized too these last couple of years is like people want to talk about that big buck they saw, even if it's alive. Like people just want to want to reference that stuff. And it's a really good source of information. But that's how I kind of narrow down the area. And then I like to look at properties. In, in twofold. If I believe this is not a very, very high pressured area, what I'll do, sorry, I'm getting calls left and right right now. Good. Um, what I'll do is um, I'll try to pick bigger properties if I can because it allows me to chase deer around as much as possible. Um, But if I do believe it's a fairly pressured area, I like to look at the lands that I think are not necessarily receiving as much attention because everyone kind of wants to go on a big piece of land and chase deer around all right. over the place. Um, I look for really small properties that are really close to very large properties. So a lot of the attention is going to that big piece and that little piece is often overlooked. Um, and again, same, same as marsh, same as Hill Country. Um, I like to look at properties that don't have, now this one's marsh particular are pretty monotonous and don't have a lot of trees, not many good tree stand setups. Sure. Um, I really, really, really like that. I like having properties with cattails in particular fragments that are really, really tall deer can survive the immense amount of gun pressure out here. Um, they can get away in drives and get lucky even though drives touch pretty much everything. Um, I really like looking for that. And then I can diversify even further and go to in Wisconsin here, VPA, MFL, um, F- CFL lands, all that stuff. Um, those little bit lesser known and there's even there's properties that we talked about before this podcast mm-hmm. that I won't mention, but <laughs> there's there's even more classifications. If you care to look um, of properties and, and those little niche areas are awesome. They can be destroyed or they could have a giant buck that's holding up them like crazy because all the guys in the private around them are hunting the So right. they, th- those are your like hit or miss amazing or okay screw this area kind of kind of properties and um in hill country i like to look for like diverse habitat where in marshes i'm looking for cattails i'm looking for stuff that people don't want to walk through i'm looking for creeks right by access so they'd have to cross it um in hill country i'm looking for properties that don't have logging trails everywhere so people can get absolutely everywhere i I don't like that i like areas that i can tell have a lot of thickets from the leaf off aerial i like areas that have diverse cover with CRP and some pine um, ridges and points and all sorts of topography with them. Uh, Maybe an old logging road that makes a bench that's not maintained kind of on a hillside. I like those quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, I like ridge systems that point in all sorts of different directions, Northeast Southwest, so that it works for all different kinds of sun exposure times of year food. And then I like to, you know, have some sort of ag, Usually in Wisconsin, some areas it's on top or way out the bottoms, but just something that can sustain them pretty well. That is a little more consistent because in in the woods, in, in the open hardwoods, there's food. Heavy. There's all sorts of browse. There's all sorts of acorns, early season, late season acorns, everything you can imagine. Um, food adds a little bit of a layer of consistency to it, so I, I like having that. Um, but that's kind of like the process I go through to just identify a property. Um, and I lose a little long-winded but no but yeah that's step one right there i like
0: it i like that a lot how close of proximity do you like that food source that ag field or whatever to be to your public do you like public that butts up to it or how far away like at least at what point will you like write off a property
2: so i i like it when it's butted up to it because i can shine in glass i like that a lot um and i'm not as good at doing that as Andy Maeve or guys that like can look at a field a half mile away and no more bucks betting <laughs> and mm-hmm. like on the public. So I, I like I, I might be handicapping myself a little bit by not having that knowledge quite yet. But um I, I like having that immediate okay what trail did he come out of what trails he going into kind of thing. But um especially in marshes, deer are willing to travel to, to, right to food. Like You know, it's not as big of a push in marshes because I know they're going to hold up to those marshes when the pressure gets going, because this is the area they won't get killed from. Um, But when it comes to hills, it's even easier for them to travel in marshes within a mile is absolutely close enough for a deer to be bedding a mile away and traveling each night. When you think about it, it takes us, who's a lot more clumsy, like 20 minutes to walk a mile in the woods. in in the open hardwoods right like a deer has all night they can't even feed all night long because they have to sit down and digest if you had to walk a mile every day to guarantee that you live to see tomorrow you'd do it right in a heartbeat so you know and i've seen deer be far more far more nomadic than that every single day in far more difficult terrain so my my comfort range is anywhere from two miles but it's not a deal breaker if ag's not there necessarily sure. in hill country because they already have so much food but it does help me narrow things down it's a little more consistent of a food source where you know like fresh cut corn in the late seasons mm-hmm. is gonna get deer moving toward it um it just helps me narrow down when being used. gotcha gotcha
0: that's interesting yeah i wasn't sure <clears throat> i mean part of it too like in southwest wisconsin where i do most of my hunting i mean it's excuse me it's tough to to go too far without running into some sort of an egg field or some sort of food usually they they don't uh they don't have to do too much there do you ever i mean obviously you got to figure out you know if if that's a food source that they're using (coughs) it's a ridiculous question never mind Um, (laughs) (laughs) um another question that i had in your discussions and like questions uh, or just knocking on farmer's doors and stuff, asking them about, you know, where they've seen deer and you know if they've seen good deer and stuff. I'm just curious. Cause it, it made me think about, um, I mean, just the Southwest corner of the state. We, we did an episode with Paul and a couple of weeks ago, talking about just doe management or deer management as a whole um, in Wisconsin and just the the age of the small farmer getting older and older Mm -hmm. and older nobody's really filling those spots i was curious if you'd ever had any uh experience with with farmers inviting you on as you've been asking them around
2: Uh, yeah i've i've had it before um i've i've always turned it down sure um uh, i'll accept it for like turkey hunting um but i was like super cut my teeth and i really wanted to get my first like mature buck on public land Mm -hmm. after that happened i i just love public land anyways so i kind of like the yeah. freedom of it honestly totally. like being able to go wherever i mostly like the challenge of it um knowing that any other guy could be doing what i'm doing um i really really enjoy that um where a lot of people like say oh it's so hard it's so pressured i'm like hell yeah it is like that's <laughs> awesome like like you get to you get to beat out even more people now. like that right. I, don't I like that i like right. being the guy and it, it certainly is like demeaning at times and Can get you down on yourself when you're constantly running into people and setups but like it just motivates me even more you know like the more obstacles you can put on the more it seems like you know within reason but the more obstacles you put on the more it seems like that triumph is rewarding in the end so um there's a few properties that i have turned down permission on Um, i think some people may say that's naive i may agree agree with those people a little bit um but it's just you know it's the decision i made decision i might might make again but um you certainly can get permission just doing that um and i would advise if you're trying to get permission everyone has a lot of work to do on a farm like go in there be willing to just shoot the shoot the breeze with them offer to do some work make friends with them because they're great people they know everyone in the freaking area Uh, everyone helps each other out up there and just build a reputation for yourself as a good person and be willing to do the work just because you want to help out a farmer and maybe you'll get rewarded for it. But they know when you come to them, just looking to get a reward out of it, you know, like just go there be a good person, enjoy the work, enjoy the gab, listen to someone who's lived in the area their whole life and has seen way more than you probably ever see in your life. Mm -hmm. Like it's a, it's an awesome thing to have a conversation with those guys. So Go there and enjoy that. And you might find your way into permission where there's some giant bucks. Oh, totally. I wouldn't go there with the intention of it.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. And I mean,
2: you said it there, like most of them have
0: lived out on that farm for their entire life for the majority of it. Right. And so they've the number sure. like you'd be very, very naive to think that you're the first young guy who's knocked on their door asking to hunt. You know what I mean? Or asking about yeah. your information and stuff. But no you're you're absolutely right there too just you know there's so much work and you know especially these days with you know kind of the the small family farms starting to kind of dry up in the landscape it's it's getting harder and harder to find people who are willing to help out and keep these things running so yeah that's 100 man it's a, it's a very good trade-off if you can if you can do it but yeah. all right ma'am so let's circle back here to uh to scouting here and I wanna, I've got one specific question about just e-scouting in general. I feel like Mm. a couple of years ago, everyone was geeking out over the fact that like, you've gotta hunt saddles, you've gotta be in a saddle. You've gotta like, you know, find this terrain feature, find your, your funnel or whatever, like all the movement, every deer in the, you know, on that property is going over that saddle. Mm-hmm. What are some of the more underrated features, overrated and underrated features, that you found um, just through your experience, both in hill country and uh, hunting the more marshy areas as well?
2: Um, yeah, that's a good question. So I'd say saddles are so so overrated. Um, yeah, they're useful. Uh, and very pressured areas at least I mean I don't pay attention to them really like I maybe mm-hmm. during the rut like but I don't seek out saddles just because like I've, I've just been hearing that for so long and there's always hunter sign and even in lower pressured areas um I do like a lot of I like benches that provide relief in very steep terrain I like that a lot uh, I like points like crazy I like points with just jagged edges. I love using LIDAR in hill country with two foot contours to just find little tiny knobs. Um, for all sorts of different scenarios, obviously. With with thicker cover, that's even better too. Um, in relation to food up top, that's even better with dough bedding and thick cover up top for the predominant wind. If he's on the leeward side, even better yet. Like. If it's something that's related to a late season food source like chestnut oaks up top and he's on a South facing slope, even better yet. So like, there's a lot of like compounding factors that um, deal with those things, but definitely the, the features I look for in Hill country are points, knobs, benches, all in relation to what kind of food do I think he's by? Is he by dough bedding and is the, I would say, is the sun exposure kind of pointing towards a certain time of year? Is the cover pointing towards a certain time of year? And can I relate it to those other things? So like, you know, if he's in an area where there's a lot of red oaks and that's coming into phase around mid to late October, specifically the later part of October in many areas of Wisconsin, and then he's on a west-facing slope, He's got an east wind coming over, just very arbitrarily an east wind. And up that hill from that east wind, there is a thicket that has dough bedding all over it. Then, okay, the food source, his cover, intelligence of his bedding, being downwind of dough is the predominant wind. Everything is pointing me towards, like, a pre-rut sit. And so, like, that is awesome to me. The more factors I can compound that make sense towards that, like, the better um let's say south facing slope he's got honey locusts and he's got a thicket that allows him to get sun exposure but keeps him covered at the ground level for something approaching him from the ground like uh, again late season textbook you know the more things I can add to that factor the more ways that that deer is bulletproof the better to me in hill country and so those are kind of like the features that relate to it um, especially those small knobs where deer could just sit on it and observe two hundred seventy degrees around him because he's on this isolated, isolated little outcropping. I really, really like that. In um, marshes, um, you know, just because of the area that I'm in in the marshes, it the focus is so much getting away from pressure because there's so much. There's just there's a ridiculous amount of pressure. Like it's just not even remotely close to anything else I've hunted. Um, but the focus is so much getting away from that pressure i'm just looking oftentimes for places where i don't think people would think to even set up um places where i don't think people think it's even possible to set up uh really close quarters ground setup kind of things monotonous terrain where people can't e-scout it very effectively uh stuff like that i'm looking for that a lot but if i'm assuming there's a little bit less pressure what i'm looking for is um isolated cover like a willow island or a cottonwood island, I'm looking for a little bit of risen area of, you know, willow saplings and red brush, red osier dogwood that's kind of emerging out of cattails, uh, providing a little bit of a dry area that someone might not be able to shove a tree stand in, things like that. That's what I'm looking for and maybe a little bit less pressured areas because I'm okay if it's a little less pressured, if it sticks out on a map, where I know if it's extremely high pressure. If it sticks out on a map to me, it's probably sticked out on a map to 10 guys before me. Um, And in those scenarios, I'm looking for really, really monotonous terrain, and uh, then it's going to be a lot of brute force with boots on the ground at that point. And it's harder in those scenarios, but the deer are more concentrated because of it. I guess the mature bucks are more concentrated because of that in those scenarios.
0: That's awesome, man. I'm always curious to hear what what features and stuff folks are are drawn to and what's just kind of overhyped. Because I mean, I feel like part of it too is like, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's like anything that's online, right? If it's, if you can find it online, so can anyone else. So if everyone's saying go hunt the saddle or go hunt this or whatever, that's, what's going to draw the most attention. Right. Um, Yeah. So I want to, I want to transition now into actually getting boots on the ground and what that process looks like. And I want to kind of do it from a standpoint of, you know, we've got our, our plan. On our on Onyx or whatever app we're using, right? Now it's time to go in and actually test our theories and kind of, you know, cut some trim some of the fat off and everything, right? What's your number one priority as you start going in
2: uh, on on a property? So, my number one thing is to find where the bucks are bad. Sure. A lot of my setups and a lot of my strategy is circulated around that. I consider all the other factors too, like where they're going, all that stuff. But the number one thing is where is it bedded and what class of buck is there? Um so that um that encapsulates a lot. Like there's a lot of a learning and stuff that that happens with that. Um and it depends if I'm in the situation I am now where I have a good feel for where the bucks are bedded on these properties that I'm scouting or in this terrain that I'm scouting. It's in marshes, easier for me to assume where the bedding is. And now I can look more for sign because I know, all right, I found sign on X dry island or transition to mainland. I know that the bedding that's out there that this trail is leading to through the marsh is being occupied by mature buck. And I know this is his closest point of contact to real dry land. I may not be able to target him. In between or i may be able to target him in between but sometimes it might be more efficient for me instead of walking an extra 200 yards between points and cattails where there's marsh where there's water up to my waist it might be more efficient for me to walk that transition and find the sign to understand what's using the bedding because i have a feel for if there's sign here then i know the buck is betting there kind of thing now in hill country it's not always that straightforward but i put a little bit of a strategy like that where there's poplar groves or cedars, um, aspens, little things, things that they really like to rub, really, that, that pop up sporadically in hill country. If I have a bunch of points that are 300 yards long and I know that the batting is going to be at the end of it primarily for the most mature buck, I'm going to check those areas that I think there's most likely to be sign on the way down there. So if I have six I need to scout today and I only got time for two, I'm probably going to pick the one with the best buck sign at the beginning of it. In those areas, I've identified this good cover, like poplars, cedars, things like that. Sure. So, um, the most important th- thing for me is where he's bedded, but the way that you find where he's bedded and what deer is there can differ based on your understanding of the property and what the deer are doing there. Okay, gotcha. How so specifically? Yeah, it's it's really just like do you? So, for instance, in the marshes, like I know that in some of the marshes around here the number one bedding option for bucks is small patches of isolated willows that someone Mm -hmm. can't put a tree stand in um and and this isn't a willow tree this is like willow brush so small patches of isolated willows dogwood now there is so many of those in the cattails that if i were to walk in the cattails it would take me five times as long to touch each one of those bedding areas and it's such a small localized area because it belongs to one buck and it's it's super hit or miss so it takes a long time takes a lot of walking through area that i'm not gaining any any information on because it's just monotonous cattails and um it's it's just very difficult you know it's difficult and not as rewarding where you know and if i find out that he is bedded there that good buck is there i might have to go back to the land anyways to figure out if there's good sign there because Sometimes the bucks aren't rubbing in their beds. You know, granted, if it's willows or dogwood, you know, they generally are just a little bit at least. But that stuff's easy to bend over. It's hard to get a feel for the real maturity of a buck that's bedding there unless you just base it off its intelligence. Um, And it also doesn't tell me where it can set up because I'm not going to be setting up in bedding. So it'll give me a feel when I'm sitting in there for what he can see. But generally in cattails, like, can't see anything. You know, he's in this little batch of willows. Right. So, it makes more sense for me to walk along a transition. I make more use of my time to walk along a transition to know that if I'm seeing grubs popping up on these trails that are jutting out of the cattails, there's only such amount of cover that he can actually be in out there. And that specific bed that he's in sometimes is far enough away that it doesn't really matter um, which bed of the four available patches he's coming out of is, which specific, you know, three by three yard square of ground sometimes it doesn't matter as much because his options are so funneled down to one trail and i only have one to two trees i can really choose on that trail sure um it it makes more sense for me to be establishing what buck is there first now that changes a little bit say you get into overgrown um buckthorn areas where it's a lot of not young buckthorn, so like not the green stuff where if you took a knife to it, it would bleed green, you know, and that stuff they'll rub on, but overgrown old buckthorn that's really high, you can't really get a tree stand in it, it's all dry, crackly wood, it's not giving off a lot of that norepinephrine when you slit it, um, that's a hormone, it's a distress hormone in plants when they're trying to heal, it's the fresh cut grass smell, and that is kind of what bucks smell extremely well and can associate really press their scent into which is why they like to rub live trees really you know, pines and things that hold their scent for a long time yeah it's Plants interesting
0: Epinephrine.
2: yeah yeah so it's the same thing that like uh, you know you look at a pack of you look at um a pack of lions a pride of lions mm-hmm. hunting down one particular zebra and a giant herd of zebras yeah. it's not that they see the one that's injured it's that the one that's injured is giving off norepinephrine which is a distress hormone. Yeah, It's what you give off when you're healing or in distress. They all smell that. They smell the one that is old or weak because it's trying to heal. It's in distress. So it's not no like they can visually can. see in this giant pack, giant herd of zebras. Right. It's that they actually smell the individual that's like that. So like, you know, when you cut branches, deer smell yeah. that cut branch, it's because that branch is freaking six feet high. And what else cuts a branch clean off the sides of human? Right. It's six plus feet high, you know? Or that's why it's my ground scent because you're snapping over little branches. You're snapping over little piece, blades of grass and microorganisms yeah. and things like that. And they know that a giant foot-sized shape of disturbance doesn't really occur anywhere else besides Bigfoot, maybe. <laughs> you know, and no they don't want to be around kidding. a bear or Bigfoot either. So um,
1: right.
2: that's a that's a good way for them to detect you. So the way that relates to rubs is they love rubbing pine trees, you know, things that. There, when they penetrate that bark, it yeah. their scent lasts a long time. Right. Um, that that forehead gland can really imprint there too. That's why you see them working ground after some moisture has been into it. It's not necessarily because it washed away the scent. It takes a lot of lot of water to do that. Um, it actually stirs up the scent, makes it easier for them to smell. It's like refreshing. Okay. Essentially, so when they drop scent in that time, they get a larger survey of what's been checking in there it's basically revived some of the dried out scents that were in that scrape so the way that works in a overgrown patch of dried out wood such as buckthorn is you're not going to see a lot of pups there's been areas of monotonous buckthorn for miles that some of the biggest deer i have ever encountered lived in there but you wouldn't know because there's not big deer son. so areas like that it changes up a little bit where that's going to take some real boot leather being burnt because right. there's a lot of monotony. There's not an individual thing to necessarily pick off on the map. Um, you're going to have to look for the one foot of elevation. That's a little bit drier in some cases, if you're to develop any pattern to it, but you're really just going to have to cover as much of it as possible. And you'll start coming up, coming across those beds as you go. Cause it's really just going to be one root ball that's risen a little bit outside of that mud or water. Um, in those cases, you know, I can't prioritize sign or bedding. I'm just going to have to walk it. But that's what you need to do sometimes in these pressure situations, because who really wants to just go walk a giant patch of something that as God awful walk through as buckthorn? Right. You know, so it changes depending on your situation where you should prioritize your time. But the components of the puzzle that you need to solve are consistent. And first, for me, that's where he's bedded. What buck is actually there? What class of deer are you chasing? which you can base off of sign, intelligence of betting, things like that, isolated visas, et cetera. Um, then once you identify what kind of classes buck is there, is it a shooter or is he bedded? Then when is he betted there? When are you going to target him? You know, they'll use him for three days out of the year sometimes, or sometimes they use that bed for one day out of the year. It could be blown up with sign, but it's only being used for a small portion in a lot of the cases. So when is he betted there? You're going to use a lot of different things to determine that. You want to establish a travel direction after that. So which way is he exiting at the time of year that he's actually using this? So I know where is it? I know it's a mature buck. I know when he's bedded there. Now I want to know which way he's traveling. And then after I understand which way he's traveling, I want to know where can I set up to kill him? Where is the closest I can get where I can kill this deer? Because the further he gets away from that bed, the further he gets away from where he spends most of his daylight hours, the more chance it is for him to be somewhere other than where you're at. The closer you can be to that hub, the less room for error, or the more room for error you have in order to actually counter him as he exited. And then after that, I look at my access. So I make sure I'm not, while my setup might be close enough, I wanna make sure that I'm not busting my way through or busted him out when I get there. And that's, that's part of where's my closest setup is the access. And then I look at other hunter presence after that. So I've established there's a great buck here. He's traveling in this direction at this time of year. This is the closest I can set up. All right, how are other hunters going to potentially screw this up? And this helped me with my timing too, because sometimes it's a blatantly obvious bedding area that I thought wasn't going to contain a good buck. There's huge buck sign. It's in relation to oaks. And I know, all right, other hunters are going to start in on this mainland. Once that buck starts smelling these other hunters approaching on them, He's probably going to bust off of this. I can't see a buck that's mature being this close to where a lot of people I know are setting up tree stands already, marking up trees and stuff. I'm going to target it, you know, more in this time of year. And then I think counter that pressure. So there's really like eight pieces of the puzzle to me. It's, it's where he's bedded, which buck is bedded there and what class is he? When is he bedded there? What direction is he traveling? Where do I set up to kill him? How do I access that setup? What are the other hunters doing in the area? How are they putting pressure on him? And how might he shift when he realizes that pressure? That's all the components I'm looking for. And there's a lot of different pieces. There's a lot of different kinds of sign and a lot of different things that you can key on when you're actually boots on the ground scouting to figure out or give you some clues at each of those portions.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Man, I've got so many questions just spinning off for <laughs> right now. <laughs> First off, I gotta circle back to this whole scent thing. This whole this whole rain thing, this whole plants excreting norepinephrine. I thought that was only like a human or you know, mammal or whatever sort of thing. I didn't realize that plants were actually excreting the same it's a hormone, right? Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. I didn't realize that they even had the capacity to do that let alone yeah. do it in a way that I mean I I mean it makes sense but I figured it was from the standpoint of like oh it smells like fresh cut wood or it smells like like fresh like, cut grass yeah I don't, I don't know, fresh cut grass whatever it is yeah same thing I, yeah. right I didn't expect deer to key in on the fact that it was the hormone in there That was tipping Mm -hmm. them off rather than just like, oh, it smells like a, you know, a branch got snapped off or cut off or something like stepped here or anything like that. But the fact
2: that. Imagine, you know how many times I've done this. This was the aha moment for me. So there's a lot of places I've learned this um, not to. I will shout out this podcast until the end of time, no matter what affiliation I have or where I'm at. But episode 350 of the Southern Outdoorsman. The truth about scent with Dr. Tom Brownlee. It's fantastic. He has a dog trainer. And he answers pretty much everything you could possibly imagine about scent. Keep in mind, deer have 80 million more, around 80 million more olfactory sensory neurons than that's your your receptors, your scent receptors, than dogs do. And each of them is more conical. So the layers of it essentially. Each of them is better at dissecting and absorbing scent dog so not only do they have 80 million more they have far better ability per every single one of those receptors they have glands and components of their brain that are entirely dedicated to dissecting scent so we could go down a scent rabbit hole for sure but right there's an episode of the the mobile hunter podcast that i did on scent and a lot of the knowledge i have on it is derived from that episode 350 the southern outdoorsman which is gospel to me um But yeah, it's a really interesting thing, but the the light bulb moment where I saw this get applied is I did a lot of landscaping in the town of Milwaukee where I'm from, and particularly for fairly rich people that own some acreage in their back, and so I did many times cut down sections of like basically pieces of isolated woods on their land, and I would take a wheeler, drag it back into the woods, and I would just leave the pile of wood there. Well, in the 10 minutes with a chainsaw that it would take me to get another pile back there i had deer collecting where i was dropping off wood at the middle part. and so they were eating the fresh cut branches that were super high when i brought them back and now deer aren't going to do that wild because these deer are completely pressure this is right no offense this is one level stuff is is going on <laughs> here like and so these these deer i mean sequin Lee, don't hate me i mean you you hunt more pressure deer than that i understand i'm just messing with you but. but um you know these deer are literally picking apart fresh cut branches and i was like what the hell how did they even know that i was collecting a pile of branches here like i figured they just hear a wheeler and just want to get the heck out of there you know it's like a vehicle they get hit mm-hmm. by cars all the time you know it's no problem but like <laughs> they're just collecting eating these branches and, and eating the leaves in particular off of them I'm just like, what is going on? And then I hear that episode and stuff and I'm like, oh my gosh, like it all makes sense. Right. And I have pictures of like, like, you know, you'll cut an invasive, like, a, like a buckthorn and you know, I'll, I'll hinge cut it in front of a camera just to get it out of the way sometimes. And I've had mature bucks smelling it up to six months afterward, just literally smelling the exact place where that was split.
1: You know, no it's just,
2: it's crazy. And, and every time it rains, I think it revives that moisture a little bit, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it's obviously still attached to the ground at the base. So I think that, that contributes to it, but you know, how odd that must be for a deer, like how I was scouting today and I was thinking about, it, it was like, I saw a tree basically snapped in half. And I was like, Oh, I'm looking for the cell camera. I'm looking for the, the tree stand, you know, cause I'm like, that, that just doesn't happen. There's a really odd scenario where there's a vine wrapped at the top of the branch. And then another tree had fallen and captured that vine and just snapped this other tree off it in half. And it was, you know, handsaw cut width. It was like three inches wide at the very most, but it's like, you know how I just immediately locked onto that as human presence visually. Mm -hmm. Imagine if I could smell that like instantaneously for months, right. You know, like how irregular is that, you know, it it would be so easy for them to pick up on that. So Beyond even norepinephrine, you stir up microorganisms when you walk, which, right. you know, the deer might not be tracking the scent on your boots, but they're tracking the disturbance. That that one's a little bit short-lived compared to, it, it could be up to an hour maybe for that. But um, that's much more short-lived than if you're breaking branches and stuff like that. Um, Yeah, so that, that when you start thinking about that, that that's what those deer are keying on, you know, if you have a torn up pine tree, maybe that scent from their forehead gland wears off, but that scent of that pine tree leaking sap and trying to heal lasts for a long time. Right. And that's an irregular thing. And a lot of the other deer smell like, Holy crap, this 10 yard patch over there, you know, the next Ridgeway over where that wind's blowing from is torn up. Like I'm going to go find that doe that that buck's probably marking up. You know, it's a very aggressive kind of display. And so it's a really interesting thing, but it goes to your advantage when you're a guy trying to get away from pressure and you're knowing that everyone else is trying to read rubs you know, that's, that's a great thing when you're in an area that's not getting rubbed up that, that you can take advantage of if you're willing to do the work and find the actual beds and determine what's there based off maybe track size or intelligence. Right. Dude, that is fascinating.
0: I'm so glad you pumped that uh, Mobile Hunter episode that you did because, folks, like, <laughs> you, you. you say the title of it one more time, what episode it was.
2: Um, it just came out. Just, like, we just, yeah, I know. That's why it's so recent that I'm I'm blanking on the real title of it. Um,
0: so we did a total
2: nerd session. I'm, yep, I'm, I'm looking stuff. it up right now. Yeah. I should know because I literally came up with the title for it. <laughs> <laughs> one second. I'm going to pull it up. Uh, using a deer's sense of smell thermals and air currents to your advantage yes so we cover it we cover a lot of things but basically it's a deer is going to beat you by smell we, we go through how they smell you know break down to that the advantages that they have over you and the majority of other animals um we we go through that we use we incorporate it into thermals so like what air currents are actually going to be carrying your scent like whether it's thermal-based or terrain-based. So, obviously, deer can smell you. They have this advantage. How are they going to be able to capitalize on those advantages? And then how do you use that to your advantage as a hunter? Because you know that this is the thing they're relying on to detect danger. How can you give them a false sense of security and then capitalize on it? Right. And that's another thing that you look at in your scouting, too, which is why I'm talking about leeward sides where they're getting a thermal tunnel or a thermal rising or where they're using sun exposure to, to get some kind of air current or get some kind of warmth, if you're giving them those comfortability factors and you're understanding how you can get your air current to flow in a different direction, whether that's using thermals or terrain, then you stand to be on a very comfortable deer and still have the advantage that that deer expects to be having on you. Right.
0: Absolutely. Well, and the fact that you said that too about how they can, there's two things there that really jumped out to me. The fact that the deer will track you out, I mean, they'll beat you on scent, whether it be human scent or or what have you. Even if your your scent elimination is perfect, which is nearly impossible. It is impossible, You'd right? have to get rid of the oxygen in the environment. Right, yeah. and the fact that you're still going to be stepping on microorganisms, still going to be breaking, you know, snapping twigs and snapping,
2: you know, not even if you were on dry concrete for, for instance, if you were on dry concrete there, so Tom Brownlee is way smarter than I am. He does a much better job at this than I do, but, um, he explains in that podcast with a Southern outdoorsman. And we tell this story in the mobile podcast as well, that, um, They were tracking a fugitive or whatever. They are tracking a person. And this person was running on a road, on a concrete, dry, well-paved road. And they had a 10-mile-hour wind. That dog was tracking that person 10 yards downwind of that road. The guy was running on concrete, and he's tracking the microorganism stirred up downwind of it because that air current's pushing the scent to where the dog was tracking it. So the dog's tracking the guy in the ditch. But the guy didn't even run in. That's how crazy even a dog's sense of smell is, which is oh, far smokes. inferior to a deer's. So, you know, the dog, you can make arguments. The dog's trained to do that. You can make arguments about scent reduction versus elimination. I don't mm-hmm. believe you'll ever completely eliminate your scent. Maybe you can reduce it a little bit. I'll, I'll leave the jury out for that one. I don't want to shoot down anything. Um, <clears throat> but they certainly have the ability to smell you. Whether they capitalize on it or not, whether that deer is going to spook to it or not, totally up in the air, you know. And I will also say, do whatever gives you confidence. If you want to get this product and you believe in it, um, you know, go for it. Just, just do it. Do what makes you happy. Do what makes you confident have the time and money to do it, and and it's a drop in the bucket. You're passionate, and you know, invest in yourself. Invest in your passion. Go for it. I don't, I don't agree, and I won't do it for myself. But that's fine. Like We don't have to agree on everything. You know, you're out here in the outdoors. We're on the same team. Like, go for it. But if you do care to try and, you know, look up as much as you can because you are passionate about it, like I am, like I did, um, you know, there are certain levels of science that you have to be able to prove to prove someone's guilty in court if a drug dog smelled you, you know, or if they've located you. So there are things that are scientifically and legally accepted as fat. And those things kind of point to that the, the deer will smell you. <laughs> right. If if you're to go that route. But yeah. Man. That is wild.
0: That that's like tough to yeah, even just wrap your head around like how much better. Like the fact that like a dog's doing that and a deer is said. Has
2: 8 million or 80 million, yeah. So, like, I believe dogs have around 220 million, and, and I'm rounding a little bit here, mm-hmm. but dogs okay. have around 220 million olfactory sensory neurons or OSNs, yeah. Some people call them receptors. Um, and deer have around 300. Holy smokes, man! Or, or deer have around 297 or something, sure, right? Right, so I'm rounding, but close but enough, yeah, I mean. Yeah, it's, Either it's, way it's amazing. Good. I think I think humans have like fifteen thousand or some some like it's in the thousands. It's not even really it doesn't touch a mil- It doesn't touch a million. I'm pretty sure. Huh. Um, but yeah, and we could. I I don't think we should. I think I really think we should. But we could talk about scent and thermals and the deer's sense of smell until the oh, end of time. Really? And it's really interesting that not a, not that many people really do. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is some of them get hushed by a lot of people that really believe in scent control. yeah. And I think a lot of people are really like, they don't want to pick a side on this because they don't want to like offend, not necessarily offend. I don't think it's the right word, but they don't, don't want to lose, lose the followers that are, that have bought into it like crazy. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I care about my followers more than that because I want to give them the highest extent of education that I have. Mm-hmm. Um. So it's like saying like, you know, it's like saying like your hat is orange and it's stupid well you're not going to be upset because your hat's not actually orange you know like right like it's it's just a fact it's not an opinion that to get worked up about In my opinion and well my opinion you shouldn't be worked up about facts (laughs) but you know and if you disagree with it you disagree with it if you can bring up another point i'd love to listen to it and i might agree with you in the end but you know if we just Get all pissed off at each other and shut down conversation, then none of us get anywhere. So, right, I'm more than willing to be proven wrong. I'd actually love that because then I would get to learn something new. But totally, yeah. In this case, in this case, I'm proven wrong every day. I'm not going to be obstinate, but right, you engineers, you're you're uh, you're trained to uh, design till failure and work till yeah. failure. So it's 100. <laughs> you you keep failing until you cannot make it fail, and then you'll know you have found a right design
0: exactly (laughs) well man we are going to get to thermals and like how that plays into access and scent control and stuff like that i do want to touch on that for sure before we jump further ahead here i do want to circle back to something you mentioned about rain freshening scrapes actually and rejuvenating that scent because i feel like dude at least i myself have been told i don't know how many times that like oh yeah after a big rain you go out and like you know that they're gonna want to go out there and then and freshen their scrapes and freshen the rubs and bucks gonna be on their feet and all that kind of stuff the rain itself isn't washing anything away it's actually just enhancing it right i mean it's which makes perfect sense i mean Mm -hmm. it's like you know look at a wet dog that's more what i've
2: observed on it at least you know like And, you know, it's weird because I sat so many times right after rain, whether it's light or actually after a lot of times in proximity to scrapes and light and heavy rains and stuff like that. And I have deer, I, I haven't really had much success with deer visiting after rains particularly, but my observation on trail cameras has been light rains enough to rejuvenate that scrape is when they get visited most prior to rain. Um, okay. and I, and I think it's enough to revive the scent. I'm trying to think of a good analogy for it, but like, I, I mean, I'm just imagining something dried out and stained on your counter and then you pour water on it. It probably smell a lot worse, you know, like, sure. or <laughs> here's a disgusting analogy. So me and my buddy love bow fishing and we had a place to dock our boat on the shoreline of one of my family members' houses. And we shot a bunch of carp and we were out all night long. We probably had 40 carp in this trash can or maybe two trash cans. And uh, we had school the next day. We were running a less than an hour of sleep. We basically had to pound some Red Bulls and go to school. And we're like, screw it. Like, we'll just leave it and we'll just grab it tomorrow. Right. Well, it rained that day. And so these carp weren't smelling that bad because they've been, you know, they've been dried out in the sun all day. Well, that bucket filled up with water. And it smelled horrid when we came back to it. And then when we moved it, it was 10 times as bad. And it just stirred up and aerated every little bit of scent that was in those rotting carp. And it was terrible. And I had to bleach my truck bed. And it was bad. (laughs) Um, And the neighbors complained about it. It was was a terrible situation. (laughs) Um, Anyone listening here, if you shot carp that night, get rid of them that night. Just saying. But, um, you know, think about it like a scrape. You get a lot of these scents dried up and imagine if you just added some moisture to it and then Mm -hmm. you had it aerated a little bit. That sun came out and it started evaporating a tiny bit like that scent is going to be everywhere. Like that scent is going to be all around. And it just takes an astronomical downpour to really get that scent out of there especially because scent travels mostly on oxygen and air molecules, which means it floats in water. So it's generally collecting at the surface of the water and not throughout its depth. Um, So, you know, when you get a downpour, if it stays in that scrape, it's at the top of the scrape, ready to be smelt and picked up by deer. Now it, it reduces over time for sure, but I truthfully believe that it's actually rejuvenating that scent more than washing it away. And I think it's an opportunity for a deer to, actually gain a lot of information and then you know they're putting their scent on it i'm assuming other deer are going to want to check it out during that time period too so you know if they pee in it and work it you know their their sense prominent there as well totally man that's a great analogy there with the carp too like that oh it's just got dude i can still smell it it's terrible (laughs) it's so bad my buddy shout out to my buddy blaze he great friend great big dude that probably could have carried all the carp at once and then has a weak stomach, and he was puking. <laughs> he oh, was honestly no. <laughs> dry heathen when we were when we were trying to get rid of them.
0: <laughs> there's certain smells, man, that get you, and there's just nothing you can do. You just can't oh, yeah. help it. Like I can can handle a lot, but like, dude, rotting meat specifically—that's one that just that'll oh, turn you inside good. out. Gross oh, ourselves yeah, out I'm, here. But oh, that is tough. <laughs> So on on the note of scrapes here. Um, so when you're, when you're out scouting then, so you've found your buck bed, you've kind of figured out where he's, where he's bedding. You're kind of trying to paint the picture, um, of, of what's going on, you know, what the travel direction is, where can I kill him? That kind of stuff Mm -hmm. on the note of scrapes, especially in hill country, we obviously hear about hub scrapes and those, those Mm -hmm. dirty little scrapes that are oftentimes the size of a car. And way down yeah. in a super inconvenient, tough to access, you know, bottom Highly visible, right? Highly visible bottom. Exactly. The off, yeah. Exactly. How do you use your hub scrapes? Is that more of an inventory tool for you? Or are you ever or have you ever mm-hmm. tried to throw a sit on one?
2: I've hunted my hub scrapes um in shallower hills and I had okay. a little bit more success at shallower hills when the when the time and the distance you're down there is not as grand uh, and far and when there's thicker cover that I'm not visually seen from Mm -hmm. that hub scrape. Um, But you know how I walk a transition in a marsh to see what's bedding out in the marsh? Well, sometimes I'll use a hub scrape and a trail camera over them to see when something is using those points. Sure. Because oftentimes in the pre-rut, what the deer will do is it's a little bit more open. Leaves have fallen or have started to fall pretty good. They can see down there and they can watch down there all day, regardless of wind direction, right? And it's loud because there's leaves everywhere. So they can sit and watch down there, especially in steeper terrain that is fairly open hardwoods. They can sit and watch. They can have the wind advantage from above in the morning. They get the scent drifting up. What they'll do is they'll work down to those hub scrapes that there might be multiple in a system, and they have not only whatever's marked that scrape and they've seen whatever's coming to that scrape throughout the day, but they can also go to, they can exit in the direction that they've been monitoring all day long. So it's the most secure direction they feel like leaving towards. And then they have the dropping thermal from all the other points, all of the dough bedding that may be above where they can walk that the bottom and then smell all of it at once. And oftentimes you see them just round right back up to a point because they got the information they needed. They're gonna go pursue a doe, or they're gonna go work another area, or something like that. So hub scrapes are are like the old day kind of Facebook posts. Everyone can yeah. check in let you know how they're feeling. It's a status update. Who is here? You know, like Timmy's going to the strip club tonight. You know, like that's <laughs> it. It's that kind of thing. Like there's a doe and heat. It's on tonight. Or mm-hmm. you know, oh well, better work to the next system. There's nothing going on here. You know, so it's it's like that. And I think hub scrapes are a great cultivation of scent and sign to have a deer gain as much knowledge as possible and as short of a trip as possible. I don't set up on them often in southwestern Wisconsin with those steep hills. And like, for example, me and my brother were walking a major, a major hub that had ridges that were jutting points into this um all the way from each side. So this this hub emptied out, it dumped out to the north. It was a north and south running hub with points of ridges jutting into it from the east and west and we enter at the beginning of this hub so we drop off the hill into the point on the very south side of this and we start walking north and we're finding all these hub scrapes and the first one that we went to i had a camera on for a survey and we were just seeing big bucks on it over and over and over again but mostly at night a little too early at this point and um and when they did come into it in daylight, it was right at last light. And so my brother's kind of newer to hunting. And um we we had this giant buck on there as like the last picture. And he's got a big telltale heart-shaped track. And we're following this track and seeing him make scrapes all up and down the system over and over and over again. And my brother's like, why are we not setting up? Why are we not just getting in it? We know there's a giant buck here. We know he dropped into the system that night. Like. Like, why don't we just set up? He's going to come back. Like, because the second we stop on one of these scrapes, he's going to be watching us on it. And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, you know, we'll just, we'll work up to the next one. I'll show you what I mean. So we go up to the next one and uh, I we're like 30 yards out. I was like, all right, you see that scrape up there? We'll get up to that, break it down. And we walk up to and we stop. And I'm like, all right, Joe, now look at how open these ridges are. You know, if a deer was to actually want to come down and work the scrape, I started pointing up to the upper third, and I was like, he would bed right there. And right as I point to that, right as I say that, a buck gets up, not not the same buck, but a buck gets up that was monitoring that scrape and just doesn't flick his tail or anything, doesn't like run off to make a big show, mm-hmm. but hops over the point of that ridge and disappears in a few bounds. And he looks at me like, what? Like, are you a goo? And I was like, <laughs> dude, that never happens. <laughs> That's in theory how it happens, but I was like, this never happens. But the, yes, that deer is watching that scrape to try and drop to it, you know, tonight. But but I was trying to show them like in these wide open hills where they can just see down this steep face and the leaves are off, like you're going to get busted if you're hunting these wide open scrapes. but you might get some really good survey information if you throw a camera down there on when those bedding areas are being used
1: sure. and you might
2: be able to bounce to the next ridge, like say you got a, in that particular system. Say you got a west wind one day and it's going to make a flip and it's going to go, you know, let's say it goes to like northeast next day. You can shift to the other side of that system for the next day. And you may have gotten a picture of him coming down from bedding on the west side. But, you know, based on the wind the next day, it's going to set up better for him to be on the east side. So you might get a good sit in on the east side, regardless of what you saw the day before. So your information is not going to be the deer did this yesterday. He's going to do the exact same thing today but you may get a feel for how they're using that hub system. And then based on that survey, there's X amount of good bucks in here. And this is how I might set up on them the next day with this wind condition. Got it. I'm always curious about that. Cause I know
0: I've, I've discussed it with Josh a couple of times, just like, have you ever set up on them? Do you ever like, have you had any luck doing it? And he's, you know, Because it's tough to get in, like you said, obviously, because you're exposed visually. It's tough to get in there, even if you're going in in the morning, uh, because you're, you're, I mean, the bucks are ideally going to be checking that on their way up to bed, right? And then, you know, catching that downward thermal, or at least in theory. So getting in there without blowing them out is tough. And so it usually comes down to just like, yeah, you either got to spook them or you got to just like give up one of those little fingers that, that juts down to it
2: yeah and it depends if they're if you know that the guys that buck's betting on a bench with a lot of thick cover on it because it's got a little bit extra sunlight because the angle it's sitting at you just got buckthorn in it you might be able to just pop right below him, really you know Mm -hmm. you may want to drop down there but you may be relying on that rising thermal and as long as your thermal air current's not going straight up to him you might be able to get off of that same airstream as him and have him side hill down to you it could definitely work like that I would also say that not all hub scrapes are built the same regardless of how that buck's betting i think that you're more likely to have success in we'll call them secondary hubs um okay. jake bush does a great job explaining this and i saw how he hunts it in ohio and he's just a, he is fantastic at this but it and, and just has a deep level of understanding of how the hills and deer work in them but um, I would say secondary hubs, these smaller little, they call them, I think Jay calls them micro hubs rather than macro hubs. Like a macro hub would be that that big long system that I was just talking about. My brother and I were working from south to north. Yeah. If we set up in that south to north drainage and that big wide open bottom, which is what we stopped in when we were looking at that scrape, that much, much less, like, less likely for a buck to be going down to that giant piece of the hub with okay. a wide open bottom in daylight but if we shoved ourselves into one of those small drainages between those points that are jutting off from the west or east sides Mm -hmm. that's more likely of an area it's got a little bit more complex ridge it's a little bit tighter quarters less visibility for the deer and it might be where they drop down to before they head into that major hub so that is is much better for targeting bucks for actual kill sit on the hub scrape but those scrapes are not always as prominent as the one giant one that's getting surveyed all the time in the bottom, right? Of right. the macro published so. Well, and those micro ones too. I would I would imagine they're
0: obviously lesser known by hunters as well too, right? Yeah. Every it takes no little to no skill to walk a bottom and stumble across yeah. a giant, you know, torn up scrape where you know every branch on it's twisted and yeah you know, right looks like somebody you can did, see it from it. a helicopter
2: you know? right exactly <laughs> yeah. exactly
0: yeah. are there aside from these micro scrapes, are there any other scrapes like field edge scrapes or just you know some random ones like kind of on a flat um or a point or you know islands or anything like it in the in the uh, marshes and all that. are there any that you actually give very much weight to throughout the season?
2: so, Field edge scrapes I like for like surveys and stuff like that, mm-hmm. uh, especially preseason. Love, love field edge scrapes for um, just trying to get a survey of what deer are around because a lot of deer are going to work that at yeah, night during the rut too. You know, how many times you hear about that legendary buck and everyone's got a picture of him in a field field edge scrape you yeah. know, working it the buck everyone calls the tuning fork buck or whatever, you know, <laughs> Zeus or, you know. Yeah. So like that's, that's the buck you see on the field edge scrape at night or what, what have you. But um, so they're good survey information pieces, especially if you gotta feel for the betting. You just need to know what buck's there. If that's what you're struggling with, you know. Just get a survey piece out there. But mm-hmm. the scrapes I really, really like are and and you know we we talked about eight pieces of the puzzle before, and a lot of the times you can't get all of them. Don't think that you can come into every situation to get every piece. Right. The hardest part is when is that buck getting there? Like when is he using it? Bucks move in mysterious ways sometimes, man. And and you can put everything in your perspective. Like, you know, I talked about all the situations, south-facing slope, you know, honey locust, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Everything might line up for him to be there late season. He could just be there two days in the early season. You you don't know sometimes. Right. When you're not sure of that, and you don't have enough going in your direction, but you know there's a great buck in there, that's when I like to look at what I call primary scrapes. Everyone has a different, different definition of this, but... That's when I like to look at primary scrapes, the scrape that that buck is probably hitting when he's entering or exiting that bedding, close proximity on the trail, I believe he's traveling down. Um, that's when I'd like to have a trail camera on that for maybe my information for this year, but most likely my information for next year on what time of year he's actually using that. Sure. And that's just if I have the sign to know there's a mature buck in here, or maybe I don't have the sign, but I have like the bed, it just seems super intelligent, it's isolated, it's a large bed, it's got good tracks going into it, but I, I just don't know the antler quality of this deer, or if it's truthfully mature, or if it's just a big old nanny or something like that. That's when I'll use a trail camera, mostly the vast majority of time, it'll be a set camera uh, in that situation to get my timing down. Uh, but I, I use trail cameras as very valuable assets to answer a particular question. And so I only use them in situations where they stand to gain me a valuable piece to what I know is a good deer. You know, I I won't just put them on like, Oh, I want to get a picture of this deer. I know everything about it. I just want to get a picture of, no, I want to kill them. I know everything about that. Why would I waste that asset Right situation? And the way that ties into scrapes is just scrape is a very good way to have a certain point that the deer is going to be pinched to and likely check on. So yeah, that's, that's the way I use scrapes. I don't hunt over them much in marshes. Um, Sometimes scrapes in early season and marshes are great on the Mm -hmm. edges of Oak Islands when the pressure hasn't gotten back. But nowadays it seems like everyone's on these Oak Islands before the season, early season, everything like that, you know, it's not the same as, as what it used to be. Um, but I do hunt them a little bit more in the hills. I don't pay a whole lot of credence to them. Um, maybe outside of the rut in close proximity, don't let Gotcha. In those marshy scenarios, just, uh, you mentioned
0: there just a lot of traffic and a lot of pressure on those Oak islands and stuff.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't know how wet a lot of the marshes are that you're hunting, but have you found that deer are like they kind of adapt to duck hunters and the pressure and the yeah. guns and stuff like that?
2: Yeah, absolutely they do. Yeah. They yeah, there's some places that have these small oak islands or things that you would think would line up for good food sources or bedding, but they're right on the edge of wide open lakes or ponds or rivers or whatever that duck hunters are commonly around, and that sure. duck hunters also like to park on those sometimes, and they just don't get inhabited by deer in those situations very often but all these marshes um and i'm not narrowing anything down by saying this right but all these marshes if you were to walk in the center of the trail and it wasn't frozen you'd go up to your waist in in water in in most cases so they're mostly floating bogs of cattails or you know various other kinds of marsh grass or fragments. and if you were to just go in there you could go well over your head or typically on a trail, you'd go probably about to your waist in the water, so you got to walk through it pretty strategically. Sure. And I find guys all the time, two miles of that walking back on an island. It's just it's just how attractive islands have gotten. They've seen a lot of people succeed with it. They've been taught some good strategy, and now they're on those islands, kind of like what you talked about with saddles. Like that's that an oak island is the saddle of marshes. Right. Um, it's it's everyone knows about them, everyone knows to key in on them. Um, and I kind of see it going in cycles of probably realistically around five years, there's these extreme fads of yeah, certain things and they work and they work and they work, and then they start to phase out. And if you're gonna get on the special gear, you gotta be doing something a little bit different than what everyone else is already keying in on. Right. Absolutely. That's that's such a great point there.
0: And just it that there is that cycle, right? everything's cyclical everything's got that fad where everyone you know you got to be hunting this way or else what are you right. doing like this is the the new right. hot hot tactic when i don't know in reality you think <laughs> you've still got you know jim up the road smoking right. cigarettes in his stand and just you know walking through the woods with a 30 30 and you know killing a good buck too you know like it, it's yep. you, you never really know you mentioned... I would just echo, if
2: you if you want to have success like everyone else do what everyone else does right you want to to achieve the same things as everyone else then then do that sometimes you dumb luck your way into doing something very odd yeah. and it results in a very nice buck getting killed but um I would say pay attention to what other people are doing and um try to stay away from that unless they're not doing it in your situation right you
0: mentioned um kind of uh you didn't mention the the exact words but you mentioned kind of like crossings ditches pinch points stuff like that Mm -hmm. do you give much weight to those or are you more so focused on the bed and trying to figure out okay how can i get near this buck kill him while he's leaving his bed or going to his bed whatever it Mm -hmm. may be during the year
2: yeah crossings ditches pinch points in survey locations, yeah, yeah, absolutely, it makes a a big difference for me to be able to capture multiple bedding areas at once. Sure. Um, which to me, uh, we'll call it a hub, a crossing, is a hub of trails, or mm-hmm. you know, a, a ditch, maybe a hub of different, you know, deer dropping down to it or something, something like that. But just in general, a collection of activity, um, great place for surveys. Of bedding because you can see where deer are coming from now if it's very far from bedding it's not as useful but it'll just give you a feel for what deer are in that area which is which is key you know sometimes it's just enough that you need to know the, the size class of deer and then you're scouting sure. the rest um but there are some situations where you know my setup will be on a major intersection of trails and that's because maybe spaced five yards apart on a 180 circle there's all sorts of different individual bushes that buck could be bedded in Mm -hmm. that's all risen out of cattails um and this happens to be an intersection of all of them and it's not too close to all of them that i would fail and spook the deer out so like that gives me the opportunity to be wrong if i guess the individual bush but be right if he's in any of them so so in those situations yes i don't always set up I don't like setting up in relation to just travel. I don't like like being like all this trail is dug out and there's just Mm -hmm. a bunch of tracks on it and whatnot. And even if there are just big buck tracks on it, that just doesn't guarantee a whole lot to me because they move like crazy at night. Right. It it just doesn't. It's not enough to me to say that this is absolutely going to give me a big buck at daylight. But right, uh, it's certainly an important thing to be paying attention where a lot of the deer travel. I understand what you're traveling down. To. If it's does regularly traveling down all the time, maybe that's somewhere you want to sit during rut. Or if your goal is to catch a cruising buck, and you know you're just going for the upper forty percent, let's say of your of your class of size there, you know your funnels and ditches and your major crossings and your beat down trails, you know cruising through doe bedding or whatever might be a perfect situation for you. You know we all have. Have different goals and stuff not to say you couldn't shoot up upper one percent doing that mm-hmm. you know they could certainly slip up um but i really like that strategic chess game of that specific trail that that buck is going to come down on that day right and generally it just doesn't work out where i have as much options um in those situations it's usually not something that's super defined otherwise that deer gets killed if totally. that sign's super defined because people key on it
0: right no, I'm, I'm right there with you with the picking out a specific buck and it's kind of signing up for a little bit of torture when you, you know, commit <laughs> to doing so that true. right. But, you know, yeah. it's I don't know. There's something about making it personal and and like you said, playing that chess game with a specific deer and trying to get him, you know, on it while he's on his routine and stuff like that and just pick him off. Like there, there's something fun to something fun about that. And that, that's why I asked about the, the ditch crossings and, you know, those the the hub scrapes and just those heavily trafficked areas. Cause I feel like most guys, you know, it's, I mean, most dudes are taking a rutcation, right. And so they're, they're, yeah devoting their time in the woods to that first or second week of November, right. When the deer, you know, out there cruising, looking for does and stuff like that, which is, you know, that's, that's a great time to catch, you know, like you said, one of those, you know, still upper 40% of your, your Mm. bucks in that area, but you know, you're, you're leaving a little bit more to chance that, that the big one's going to come by. Right. Whereas. Yeah. For sure. I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on it. Do you think it's. Yeah, I, I bite my tongue when I want to say easier, but do you think it's easier to target and I think get on a specific buck or say, uh, uh you know, that upper 10%, whatever your target buck is, that that individual buck, do you think it's easier to get on and kill him outside of the rut or inside of the rut?
2: That's a good question. Um, it depends on, it depends. Yeah, yeah, no, I've never <laughs> said that before. Um, I, I'll just give you a few scenarios. I know, Fierce and I joke about this all the time. Um, because it does everything, everything is situational, but let's let's give the situations The mm-hmm. Um the buckhouse after this year was not better for me to be on him during mm-hmm. a rut because the betting that I had nailed down that was his. Again, all these deer, no prior experience. This is me figuring out seat in my pants in the season as mm-hmm. it goes. I had his betting fairly nailed down for an early season food source like oaks and he even when he started breeding his first does in mid-october which he got just his pick of the litter too it was crazy but he had does following him in the cattails like october 18th this year it was just crazy really? but um yeah it was it was wild i have video of now you don't see the deer because he's in cattails but you can hear him grunting and chasing and then he turns around at one point because he gets sketched out, and the doe just turns back and follows him. And then I have pictures of him later exiting that bedding right under the right under the uh the land feature by him, and that you know got pictures of him. So I, I knew it was him in there. No other deer right. came in or out of those cattails, but him bettered target in outside of the rut. Um, not because he got crazy during the rut, but. Because the only hole in his game is if a doe made him go somewhere he wasn't as comfortable, because he sure. got love blind, and that's how he ended up dying. That's how the number one buck I was chasing this year ended up dying, uh, is because you know he split his pattern for a day following a doe and he got shot. But the bucks I was on in hill country, I would rather target the rut because. Sure. They get a little more consistency to them in the case that they're not in the same area all the time, but they're bouncing between doe bedding. Yeah. They're, they're, so you can understand their cycle. You could get on them the same buck a half mile to a mile apart from one day to the next, but you just had to understand how that deer was rotating between doe bedding in order to find his doves. So in the early season, you know, there's a lot of cover everywhere. They're not necessarily traveling as far and they've got so many options to bed where they've got these visual and thermal and all sorts of stuff advantages of these complex ridge systems that it's much harder to narrow that down. They aren't quite leaving the sign that you can key in on as frequently, I'll say. They certainly are leaving down the sign, but they're not leaving down the sign as frequently whether that be tracks or rubs or scrapes or whatever for you to kill them in that earlier season. Now when their testosterone can be up, they're generally telling you where they've been, Um, especially when it's in relation to those. There's a phenomenon that I kind of picked up on that um, has worked for me that I don't know if it's worked for many other people. I've talked to some people and they've agreed as well, but um, it's, I don't know what to call it. So I've just been calling it bird dogging because we had a drill in football as an alignment where you would step your route. So coach say one, two, three, and each time he said, one, two, three, you'd be doing one step of your route, two step of your route, three step of your route until it became just a subconscious habit. Right. So you would walk that pattern until you'd be running that play. And you're like, all right, every single step is in place, subconscious, you know, I'm now it's time to run the route, run the play, you know? And so what I saw when I'm getting on these new properties in hill countries, what I really wanted was to get fawn drop dates and date it back 200 days to when that dough was bred. And so I got a lot of fawns that were glistening and clearly dropped recently or clearly just a week old. And I started seeing in the latter part of the summer bucks actually bedding on those. Usually it's higher up in the tops, those dough bedding areas, because there's a lot of thick cover there, but they're just sitting in what was dough bedding. So I thought it was really, really interesting mm-hmm. that the bucks were you know, sitting in that dough bedding for a day and then working off and they were making these big movements. I would get him in one bedding area. And then the next day I'd get the same buck in another bedding area, half mile to a mile away. And I'm like, geez, he's making huge moves and it's August, you know? Right. Um, but I would get him doing that. And he's actually bedding where, I've get, where I'm getting does bedding. So I thought it was really interesting. And then I noticed during the rut in almost the exact same order, I got the bucks shifting from those same beds, not bedding in them, but checking yeah. them yeah, day to day to day. And so my, my theory has been that what they're doing in the summer there is they're checking what does are left around, what does have survived the year. And they're checking what fawns they have dropped as well. And then keeping that in their bank and then just running that route, just going into their blind, what is my nose telling me mode, but they've essentially had a practice run a day route they know where the does that have survived are still at because they're staying generally in the same area throughout the year right as far as bedding goes and they're just rotating between bedding area to bedding area to bedding area and they usually use it for they don't bed in that doe bedding but they bed on the fringes of it and they're usually in that area for about three days so when i know that does are popping in heat it's much easier for me to be in that three-day hot zone that i know my buck is going to show up on in that first dough that's coming in heat. Um, than it is necessarily for me to get on them in other parts of the season. So like on new properties, I had bucks grunting and chasing. I have a video on my channel called uh, "Mid October Madness," March 18th, bucks grunting and chasing those. Um, and I had bucks nearly running me over at night on the 19th and 20th in completely different areas of that property because I knew when those fonts dropped. And so it it was just really interesting to see the bucks do that. And I have one area that. The the cycle didn't get completed by this particular buck I was after. I was like, damn, like, you know, I thought this was bulletproof. I thought it was fine. And then I went to go pick up my camera on December 14th. And that buck was actually all over that cell cam right as I was approaching it, fighting another buck over a doe fawn that came into heat. So she was just old enough to go into heat that year. Like she was an early, bo- early born. Yeah. And his mother got bred during the season or, or kicked out. And she got picked up in the secondary rut. So, like, this area that I thought he missed, like, I I don't know if the mom got kicked out or what, but the area that I thought he missed, he came back in the secondary rut and was fighting over that fawn. And actually jumped him as I went to, like, pick up that camera. It was crazy. But, you know, I don't know if that works everywhere. I don't know if it's Mm -hmm. a property in particular or something like that. But uh, it was a really interesting thing that I picked up on, and it it was just... um, it made sense to me because i've always had good success in that late october pre rut stage where they're seeking does yeah uh, because i have such a good feel for where those does are betting whether they're getting bred right no i i
0: like that that bird dog theory a lot and you, you i i think i've talked with you about that off air
2: before yeah as well. i think we had and... like a short i think we had a short moment on it on a podcast and then we just geeked out off air for a little bit, right? About (laughs) that
0: too, yeah, yeah, man. It, I've definitely heard about that you that kind of bird dogging thing, or almost bucks just kind of making. And I've seen it too, but just kind of making their circuit for the year. Yeah, that's a great word for it. They have their their track almost, and it's like okay, on this wind they're running this track, on that wind they're running that track, or you know, this week they're doing that, in the next couple days they're on on the next one, and all that and that's yeah i mean that's part of why you know finding those travel routes and finding those areas and stuff like if you could intercept them on their route you know it's
2: a great rut strategy right hmm. that's the interesting thing about guys sitting in the same area for a week and then one day it works out too right like traditional mindsets like you sit there fail the traditional super excessive mobile hunter mindset i'll say you know it's not traditional throughout all the mm-hmm. money, but the traditional mobile hunter mindset is: I was there, he smells me at night. Now if he didn't show up and it's busted. It's done. Well, if he's running huge circuits, like he might not touch that area until day four,
1: but right. he's sitting there,
2: he might not have the opportunity to even smell you there. And so like, you know, if he doesn't cross your scent trail on the way into that spot, you know, you're just trying to guess that one to two day period or three day period that he's actually betting around there and work in that area. Yeah. You only got to be right. One of the seven days for it to matter, but you only got to be wrong once for it to kind of screw you too, right? Well, now everyone's saying that the uh, the number
0: one rut strategy is just get your butt in a tree and stay there, right? <laughs> like,
2: <laughs> and I hate I hate hunting like that, but you know they're right in many situations. Oh, it takes some it's, grit. Sometimes you just got to do it. If if you if you're all about just killing a deer, sometimes that's the best way to do it. Oh, I totally. like to kill a deer the way I love to do it. So sometimes I frustrate myself because I know I could kill a deer doing that, but I just like too bullheaded sometimes. Right. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's a cool thing. It's a, I got a little bit of experience with that in the Hills of Ohio. And it was a, uh, it was it was a great experience doing that too. Totally. Well, man, it's getting late
0: here. I've got one final question for you here. We mentioned it earlier, but planning access while you're scouting. Obviously, this is a can of worms that could be an entire episode if we wanted it to be. When you are out scouting this time of year and you're kind of figuring out what the lay of the land looks like and where you know certain features are, kind of painting the picture of uh, you know how deer use use the land and how a buck moves through it, how do you go about planning your access to a spot?
2: So I'd say the best way to do it for a guy first getting into it. It's to sit in that buck bed and visualize what that buck sees, smells, where he's traveling, what he cares about, what what all of his possible monitors are when he's sitting in that bed. Um, if you don't got someone with you or if you don't have a weight to turn around and see that bed really well, bring an orange coat, bring an orange hat, put it about deer height, you know, deer head height when he's alert in that bed. And then move back until you can not see it or just faintly. Mm-hmm. not see it and make sure that you understand what the thermals are going to be doing in that location, bring milkweed if you have to. Yeah. Um, And make sure that you're out of sight, sound, scent, and, and that you're not in that order, probably in reverse order. Um, Make sure you're out of sound sight, scent, sound sight of that deer and that you're not getting busted on the land. And then just have on that, make sure it's on the trail that he's most likely to exit down. You can try to cover more trails if you want, but I would hedge your bets on the most likely trail. Sure. Look for like tree taps, rubs, tracks, you know, things that you can use as incentives that we we've covered on a little bit already. Right. Um, we try to cover that main trail that you think he's exiting down, and um, make sure, to an extent, immune to his senses. Mm-hmm. And that you have a shooting lane, and that's that's kind of it, really. sure is, um, you know, sometimes you can get up in that tree, and you only got one option. Like the buck I killed this year, I had only one option. I had to be in the tree I was in, so you know that removes a lot of the right. the guessing work, you know out of the out of the equation there. I didn't have you know the opportunity to go sit in that bed beforehand, but um, just just visualize, and the more reps you get sitting in those beds and figuring out what they're smelling, seeing how they're exiting and stuff like that, the more you're going to be able to do it on the fly when you're going in boots on the ground scouting in season. Got it, man. I like it. I love what you said there. That I mean, that's that's such a,
0: a hot tip there, what you said about the blaze orange Thank cap. You. That's yeah. such a great tip. And you I'm guilty of it myself. I haven't brought milkweed in with me a single time this year that I've gone out scouting. Like I've got, you know, normally I stuff a bunch of it in the – little side pocket of my vinyl harness so it's easily accessible but i just i ran out at the end of the year and haven't been able to pick up more yet but um man that's that's a great great tip and just understanding what time of day you're planning to to head to that area what time of you know yes what, what's the wind looking like is that going to be a, a shaded slope or is it a sunny slope
2: like what's because you know
0: that's yeah i was going to echo
2: that too like you that's a very good point the time of day and and i i was kicking myself because i was like i should mention that but, but um also understand the foliage is going to be different likely when you're hunting versus right. this time of year so um you may have your spot prepped and ready to go but you may want to go figure out what those wind currents are doing when the leaves are on or something like that or when the sun's setting in the spot you actually plan to be on at that time and a lot of that comes with in season bringing your milkweed which is why you're okay sometimes if you don't bring in scouting because in season is when you're going to get the experience of what the wind currents are doing in season. Right. And, and again, like, just like the more beds you sit in, the more you understand what that deer is looking for. Well, the more times you sit in the tree and observe those wind currents with milkweed, the more you're going to be able to just get up in a tree, be like, all right, this is my setup. I already know what the wind currents are doing because I've seen it in the situation 10 times before. So it's really just about reps. It's, it's like anything it's about getting as many reps as possible how, how are you going to understand thermals if you don't get them at all? If you can't observe them if you don't have milkweed. Well, right. take it back even further. Every time you see a good buck get up or you see a deer get up, observe how they're using them. You know, mm-hmm. so like there's always some kind of observation you can make that, you know, like we started the podcast talking about going back to the map after e-scouting and getting boots on the ground. That this is your going back to the map. This is the observation, but record it, understand it, log it so that you can learn from the failures, you can learn from the successes and then keep applying. A lot of people just go in the woods and they fail and they're like, oh, oops, You know, maybe maybe I'll do better next time. Or they succeed and they're like, sweet, I got a buck, you know, that's great. Well, imagine how much more you would gain if you recorded all that each time, at least mentally. You took note of what worked and what didn't and then you used it to improve in the next hunt. You would triple your time in the woods essentially. By right. making sure you're squeezing everything you can out of each experience. Absolutely, man. Dude, I love that. That's
0: that's something I gotta get better at as well here. But dude, that you're absolutely right. Cause I find myself doing that with trout, especially, where I'm like, okay, I'm trying yeah. to remember where I was and like what the conditions were on this day. And then I'll like go through my phone, pull up a photo or whatever. I'm like, yeah, it was really good that day. It was kind of these conditions, I think don't fully remember and then i'll go back and check what the weather was like that day and it's like oh yeah there was a big cold front that moved in or you know we finally got you know a, a nice little warm snap or something to get bugs moving or whatever and yeah it's
2: like it's being a able great to great analogy how many times do you pick out a certain kind of relief in the current and you're like oh like i know exactly what's hiding right behind that rock like you yeah. know like it's a sim. it's a very similar thing exactly
0: that was dude that was literally why i asked you earlier if you've noticed like other bucks moving in to an area where, like, a big buck got pulled out of. Cause, like, I've seen that with trout so freaking much, where, like, you'll have oh, yeah. one, like, solid fish in there and then he'll get caught or somebody will, he'll just disappear. Maybe he just gets pushed out or something. But then, you know, you go back a few weeks later and something else has moved in right to the exact same spot. So exactly. it's funny. It's a, I don't know. They adapt quickly, man. But oh, dude, for sure. This has been, an absolute pleasure as always, like (laughs) just the amount of the amount that I learned just from like these conversations and I'm, you know, obviously our listeners are going to gain a ton from this episode as well, but do just like the amount that I can like learn through these conversations and just the way you're able to break things down. I have to push people again to your YouTube channel. It has some of the best breakdowns, if not. No, I'm not even gonna say that. It has the best breakdowns I've come across on the old worldwide web. Could you please give them where they can find uh, some of this phenomenal content?
2: That's that's extremely flattering. Honestly, <laughs> I I really <laughs> appreciate it. Thank you so much. But uh, the wild calling on YouTube, wild calling outdoors on Instagram, wild calling on Facebook. Instagram and Facebook, I'm just gonna notify you when stuff's going on. You can see my kills and pictures and stuff like that. But uh the videos you're talking about will be on the wild calling on YouTube. And dude, I really, really appreciate it. I got total imposter syndrome about this too. So I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I mean <laughs> I'll give it my all, but um I'm endlessly thankful for anyone that, that says they gained something from it too, because that's just all I wanna give back is is anything I can really absolutely man yeah folks
0: seriously like grab a notepad when you go to watch some of these videos because like just the the number of gems and just stuff that's worth taking notes on to help you keep track of stuff and absorb things like you're gonna learn a freaking ton but jacob dude always a pleasure um i'm excited to get out and go do some more scouting now i'm just fired up but oh, yeah. man thank you so much for coming on and uh I got a feeling we'll we'll talk to you again soon before season, or huh. we'll hear the story of how you uh, drop the hammer on another stud this fall.
2: I sure hope so, man. I'm due for a, I'm due for a skunk season. That I won't even be upset about it. <laughs> now, but... <laughs> I don't know. I I
0: think I I I would be very surprised if that if that came came to be, but. <laughs> We'll see what happens. The old, the old adage—it's, uh, it's hunting not killing, right? Or at least that's what that's the, truth, man. What people say, but, man, this was a blast. Thank you so much for coming on, and uh, we'll be in touch, man. Sounds good, man. Likewise, thank you. That's all for this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast. And while you're at it, if you could leave me a five star review, I would appreciate that a ton. You can also follow along with my outdoor adventures on Instagram at the Wisconsin Sportsman Pod. That's also the best way to get a hold of me to suggest topics, guests, or questions that you'd like me to explore on this show. Big thanks to our awesome partners, Tacticam, Huntworth, and OnX. Please go support the brands that support this show. And if you're looking for more awesome outdoor content, go check out the thesportsmansempire.com where you'll find a ton of other outdoor podcasts. And until next time, make sure you make the time to get outside and enjoy the incredible natural resources that are ours as Wisconsin sportsmen.